It's the Legal Toolkit with Jared Correa. With guest David Aaron, we play a round of doubling up. And then, Jared's working through the five stages of grief. And after a lot of self-reflection, he's finally ready to open up and share his pain. But first, your host, Jared Correa. It's time for the Legal Toolkit Podcast. That's right. We're like an audible electric blanket that isn't an obvious fire hazard. And yes, it's still called the Legal Toolkit Podcast, even though I have no idea what a framing hammer does. Why can't you people just use a regular hammer for shit? I'm your host, Jared Korea. You're stuck with me because Joe Rogan was unavailable. He was asking folks to eat horse rectum again on the Fear Factor reunion show. I'm the CEO of Red Cave Law Firm Consulting, a business management consulting service for attorneys and bar associations. Find us online at redcavelegal.com. I'm the COO of Gideon Software, an intake platform for law firms. Learn more and schedule a demo at gideonlegal.com. Now, before we get to our interview today with David Aaron of Perkins Coie, let's talk about something I really hate, annoying email follow-ups. There's truly nothing more annoying than email. There's a guy out there who actually invented email. Fuck that guy. You know things are bad when the whole standard intro of I hope this email finds you well has become a meme? Simply because if one is receiving an email, they are not well. That's obnoxious in and of itself, asking that. Um, I've stopped doing it since I've come to believe it's terrible. But beyond an intro, which is usually fine for the most part, hey, how you doing? The worst thing is when people want a faster reply to their message. And I guess we could expand this rant to LinkedIn direct messages and the like if we wanted to. So folks try to come up with all sorts of things to grab your attention. So I just wanted to list some of my favorites. Actually, these are the opposite of whatever favorites are. How about this one? Just bumping this up to the top of your inbox. Oh, thanks, asshole. I understand how email threads work. Now I'm less likely to reply to you because you're annoying the fuck out of me. In fact, here's my hypothetical reply, which I would never make because I'm deleting this message as soon as I can. Your email is not important enough for me to reply to right now. I will respond to more important emails than yours first. And now I may never reply to yours. Have a good day slash life. That should do the trick. Here's another one. This may be the top of my list of most annoying emails, right? I hope you're okay. This really gets under my skin. No, you don't care at all whether I'm okay. You just want me to reply to the inane fucking email thread you started that I don't care about. So what if I was like, Ashley, I contracted leprosy and my dick fell off, so I could be better. But let me reply to that email you sent me 16 hours ago while dickless. Then you feel kind of like an asshole, right? Now you're just harassing some poor bastard with leprosy who lost his dick. Then there's, not sure if you saw my last email. Oh, I did. I very much saw it. And in fact, you know I saw it because you're tracking that shit. So just assume that I did see the email and that I'm not responding. Again, now I never will. 
How about something from the realm of the employer-employee relationships? Any updates on this? Thanks, Lumberg. No. Oh, wait. Yes. Eat a dick. And that's just a smattering of the horrible things that people do in email. Neither are we talking about sales emails, which are even worse. The thing is that these tactics are just obnoxious. They add to the stress that folks feel in their everyday life, highlighting these small pressure points, which in a larger context forces people into this creeping fear that avoiding email for any length of time is dangerous to their life and career. Your email is just not that fucking important. So maybe if you send these kinds of responses, the better course of action is to just stop for a moment and think that the person you're replying to may have every intention of getting back to you, but just not at that moment. Maybe, maybe they have other priorities ongoing at that time with respect to their business, in their personal life. It happens. If you start messaging with these kind of strategies, they're bound to backfire on you. Most people who reply in due course are now going to avoid responding to you entirely or will deprioritize your message. So just wait. Be patient. Now, I'm not totally oblivious. I get why these strategies are tempting to people and why they lean on these tactics. Smartphones have made everybody impatient fucks. Kids, adults, everybody. In our current society, everyone gets what they want instantaneously, and it's only going to get worse. So why would the expectation be any different in dealing with other people? Like people's jobs, the jobs of every app you have is to get you the shit you want right away. Nobody has to get up and change the channel on the television anymore. And no one actually needs to leave their home to get a pizza. People talk about the dangers of AI. Okay, we got an AI reference in here. No one tase me. But the dangers of AI in the convenience economy will really represent the end of humanity as we know it. People will practically give up anything for convenience, and that's super dangerous. Wally was so right, man. And annoying emails are just a symptom of all this. So while I find this to be tremendously obnoxious, really, they're just like window stickers on a rocket ship to hell. So let's talk about data security, everybody. Following the rampant nihilism of my latest monologue, which simply started out as a discussion of obnoxious email responses, what happened? Let's find out more about what our sponsors can do for your busy law practice. Before we talk with David Aaron of Perkins Cooey about data security for law firms. And after that, we'll discuss people with two first names, who I guess really just have a first name and a last name, but whatever. Partner with Rankings.io, the marketing agency for law firms that want results, not excuses. With flat rates for Google ads, a track record ranking attorneys for the most competitive terms on Google, and a team always easy to reach by phone, even during off hours, Rankings.io is the agency of choice for firms that want the rankings, traffic, and cases other law firm marketing agencies just can't deliver. Visit Rankings.io for a free consultation and start seeing your firm grow. Simplify. With Cosmolex, the only fully integrated practice management solution. Everything you need, accessible anywhere. Trust and general accounting is built in, so you don't need QuickBooks. Cosmolex's Money Finder reminds you to bill for work you put into client matters so you don't leak money. That's messy. Lower cost, better business, and less frustration. Yes, please. It's all built in with Cosmolex. Free trial and 
take 20% off your first year at Cosmolex.com. Okay, everybody, let's get to the meat in the middle of this legal podcasting sandwich. Today's meat is emu, which apparently you can eat, though I thought it would be classified as poultry. Anyway, here we are. It's time to interview our guest. We have today a first-timer on the Legal Toolkit podcast, a new fish, as it were, and that's uh, David Aaron, who is a senior counsel at Perkins Coie LLP. David, brave enough to come on the show. How are you? Doing well. I'm not going to endorse any of the characterizations you just made, but uh, (laughs) thank you for having me. Good choice. Uh, We want to talk data security today. So let's talk about like lawyers and data security. So like, just give me a sense of like why lawyers are a target. And also like, if you could talk a little bit about the sort of data they would protect, is it all of it? Is it part of it? What does that landscape look like? Sure. So you know, any security chain is only as strong as its weakest link, Mm -hmm. right? And so lawyers are in an interesting position. They have a lot of confidential information from a lot of different places, a lot of different clients that gets communicated to them. So they have a lot of valuable stuff that an attacker might want. And lawyers also don't listen to anybody. You know, they're a self-regulating profession. (laughs) Except the ones who listen to the podcast that you're listening to right now. But anyway, go ahead. No, it, it, it is, there are certain, you know, types of actors out there that it is hard to train, you know, teaching doctors, professors, executives, lawyers, they, they don't really want to be told how to do their jobs. And so cybersecurity, among other things, tends to be weaker in law offices mm-hmm. than it is at many of their clients. On one hand, you have a law firm as a, or a law practice as a collection point for a lot of sensitive information, be that trade secrets, uh, information about impending deals, uh, information about just, you know, individual level real estate closings, whatever it might be, you have that all transiting this one point, and that point probably has weaker security than a lot of its origin points. So it makes law practices a very good target. At the same time, if an attack is going to involve anything that creates reputational risk, um, that's enhanced for lawyers because lawyers right. will really suffer a great deal if, if their clients have the impression that the lawyers are not safeguarding this highly confidential information. So in a ransomware attack, for example, a lawyer might have even more incentive to just pay the ransom because of the reputational risk if the compromise were to be disclosed. Right. All right. We're going to hit ransomware again in a little bit, but there's this whole network of laws and regulations and ethics rules that relate to data privacy. So what should attorneys be aware of at a baseline level? Like, do they need to know like Graham-Leach-Bliley Act or does it depend on the on the situation? I think lawyers, when they're thinking about the security of their practices, they, they need to think about their obligations to their clients, obligations to employees. You know, certainly if a law firm were to suffer a breach and, you know, personal information or other other protected information uh, were exposed, the law firm would have to think about its reporting obligations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there is even a case of a law firm that had a lot of HIPAA-protected information. And because right. of the law firm's engagement with um, with a healthcare provider, the law firm had become subject to HIPAA. And when the law firm was breached, HIPAA came into play. 
uh, in terms though of the kind of left of boom, the the, the pre-incident security obligations yeah, right. of the law firm, right. there are some states that impose baseline cybersecurity requirements. That that's not very common. It's not as common as privacy laws. Mm-hmm. It's not as common as as data breach laws. Right. But there are some. Like New York State, for example, has one. But lawyers also need to be thinking about their ethical duties not just their legal duties. And there's the duty of confidentiality um, and a duty of competence. And these may not impose extremely high bars. You know, they're not going to be imposing rules like I operated under when I was a DOJ, yeah, right. you know, when we couldn't even right. bring our cell phone into the room. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, if you're falling below the kind of industry standard security, are you really fulfilling the duty you have to keep confidential your client's information. Right. And certainly if your cybersecurity is bad enough that, that you're compromised in a way that deprives you of access to your files and to your client's files, to your computers, you know, to your Zoom, and you're not able to perform your job, yeah. your client could suffer a real world right. consequence. I mean, it's not just about you not billing the time. Oh, for sure. So there yeah. are some, some ethical considerations. The rules are not mature on this yet, but certainly- you know, above and beyond that, you've got the, the, the business considerations we talked about. Yeah, which are like top of mind for a lot of people. Okay, let's get into some specific items. A lot of these threats emanate from email attacks, right? Because sure. people are dumbasses and they click on bad links all the time. <laughs> we all do. So like, how do you manage that? That's like a hard thing to manage because if you're sitting at the top of a business, like you're the managing partner of a law firm, like how do you make sure that your admin person who's like 67 years old it doesn't click on a bad email. Right. I mean, the most important thing to realize is it, we can talk about efforts to reduce or mitigate the number of clicks on, on links and attachments. But yeah. the most important thing, or at least an important thing, is to first acknowledge that will never be completely successful. Yeah. So if you think about your cybersecurity as a walled castle, like you want that wall to be pretty good and you want a bunch of archers or... You know, whatever other Game of Thrones characters like up on the wall, making sure that <laughs> sure. bad people don't get in. But at the same time, you've also got to know someone's going to get in. And so what's going to happen after that person gets in? So in terms of the emails, certainly a lot of people focus on training to uh, you know spot the phishing email and all that. Right. Yeah. You can, you can spot some phishing emails, but if you rely on that, you're just making sure well, that- some of them are sophisticated, you know, right? So like- Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Some criminal's job out there is to write an email that you'll click on. Right, <laughs> right, um, right, you know, exactly. And then that person's training an AI to do it even better. Yeah. So if you are only, you know, anyone in any context who relies on their own kind of ability to detect a liar or ability to detect a fraud, they're misguided because there are people out there who will be better than you. Oh, for Still sure. not a bad idea yeah, to yeah. do the training. Yeah. You know, not clicking on links and, and attachments unless you're expecting them from a specific source. That's right. a pretty good start. Yeah. There are uh, software solutions that can spot and screen out or quarantine potential spear phishing emails. Mm-hmm. Um, those aren't going to be perfect, but it's another layer also. But then you, you really got to think about, okay, so someone clicks on the link. What is going to happen if that leads to a compromise of that specific person's machine or account? Right. And that's where we talk about kind of the interior defenses that you can have up. Mm. So- I think the email stuff is pretty interesting. And I think some of that is good guidance from you. So some. the other, all of it, all of it. So <laughs> the other stuff I think that's interesting to me is like some of the results of those email hacks or email exposures. But you were talking about ransomware and how that's kind of evolved as an attacking strategy. 
So could you discuss a little bit about that, what it is and how it's evolved recently? Sure. So, you know, in its classic form, ransomware, you know, going back to, gosh, when I was back in the computer crime and intellectual property section, we were looking at ransomware that involved getting um, encryption software, you know, without authorization onto a victim's computer, yeah. encrypting the contents of that computer and having a screen pop up and say, all your files have been encrypted. If you want to get your files back, send, you know, this amount in cryptocurrency to this address and we'll send you the decryptor. And at that point, it was a pretty sophisticated operation. There was a help desk that the criminals would run to help the little old ladies or local police departments <laughs> or whoever it was. Um, those are both right. real world examples, actually. Yeah. But, um, you know, they would teach them what cryptocurrency is and how to get it and how to send it. <laughs> and then they would literally help. They'd give customer service helping install the decryptor and run it and get your files back. And so that, that was that was actually very interesting to see how professional and kind and helpful they were once you paid them their ransom. Um, <laughs> right. Has, the ransomers you know, have amazing customer service. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you take out the part that they encrypted all your stuff and demanded that you pay them, it actually, you know, not so bad. But uh, as time went on, you know, a lot of mitigations developed on, on how to deal with having all of your files encrypted. Yeah, right. You know, different ways of running backups that wouldn't also back up the the ransomware, for example, you know, became easier to to get, and so or just more incident response plans included kind of planning on dealing with not having your stuff available mm -hmm. for a while. Yeah, right. So the ransomware actors had to up their game as well, and so instead of just encrypting your files and demanding a ransom, they started exfiltrating files and saying, if you don't pay us, not only will we not unlock your computer, your, your resources. We were also going to take all of your internal communications or intellectual property or other stuff that you've been trying to keep private. Right. We're going to take that and we're going to dump it on the dark web. So it's what we call the double extortion model. And there are variations on it where, you know, there's a triple extortion where they'll identify your customers and start harassing them. And oh, you, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. you can, they, they can keep upping the game. So what you're saying is the customer service is seriously degraded recently. <laughs> well, well, I mean, I, I, you know, they deliver what they promise, um, you know. So, you know, it, on the on the subject of customer service, you know, it has become, it has continued to become a more professionalized uh, right. operation in some ways and a more amateur operation in others. There are centralized uh, groups of criminals who run what's known as ransomware as a service. So yeah, that you enables, mentioned this the other day. That's wild. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, so, I mean, in the older days, right, uh, cyber criminals had to know something about, you know, cyber. But you have a, the phenomenon of script kiddies that, that has been around for a while, people who know just enough. Um, and then big professionals who will create or, or buy very sophisticated ransomware, as well as different ways to get it onto uh, victim machines and license it. So, you know, all you have to do as a kind of middling computer criminal is um, sign up and license uh, you know, all of the, the different uh, pieces of this. And you know the ransomware as a service operator will collect a large percentage, but will provide user support to the licensee. Um, and you know they'll, they'll keep the decryptors and all that and just make sure that everything runs well. They often set rules about you know, who you're allowed to attack and who you're not. Uh, you might have read about the uh, the FBI's disruption of the Black Cat ransomware as a service. Right. Yeah. The operators actually managed to kind of take their site back for a bit and 
they they said that they were now changing the rules. They they used to not allow, or nominally at least, not allow their licensees to attack hospitals or critical infrastructure. Those rules are gone now wow. um, in retaliation. The one rule that remained in place, even after that, was you can't attack anyone in Russia. <laughs> that's why. Yeah, yeah, that's what we in the business sometimes call a clue. Um, but yeah, I... Uh, yeah, so that that's the, the one rule. That is the one rule that remains. That is really funny. All right, I got, can't I got, attack this anyone. This is great. I've got two more questions for you. Sure. First one, which I don't necessarily think a lot of people know about, is second factor authentication for login services. Yep. A lot of people do that using like the numeric code that goes to your phone, your email, but that's not the highest level of security at this point. Most people are looking for app based factors, right? Correct. So can you talk a little bit about that and how that's changed? Because I think that I sure. think that's a new thing for a lot of people. I could be wrong. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the way that that is circumvented is is not itself a new technique, but it's become more common. Mm. You know, again, as as people practicing security up their game, so do the, uh, the people looking to undermine security. Right. So we all know of, you know, signing up for two-factor authentication. You enter your username and password, and then you get a text to your cell phone with a six or seven digit number, you type that in and that that further authenticates you. you know, the two factors are something you know, which is your password and something you have, which is your phone. Right. Great, two factors. The problem is the way that a text message or a phone call gets to your phone is known as the, the SIM card. Um, that's what gives a cell phone its uh, phone number. Right. And you can take a SIM card and you can you know put it in different phones, but you can also, you can change the SIM card that corresponds to a particular phone number. So if I lost my SIM card, broke my SIM card, got a new one, I could call my phone provider and have them direct my current phone number to my new SIM card, right. which is great. But uh, <laughs> unless what you're a not cyber you. criminal, <laughs> yeah, exactly. As long as I am me, this works. We perfectly. ended up talking a lot more about it, customer service than I thought. This seems to be know, more on the I phone companies to... than anybody else. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and it, it could sometimes a, a phone company employee is duped. Sometimes a phone company employee is compromised or, or paid. But if a bad actor says, hey, I, I've got this phone number, but I need you to um, make it ring at a different SIM, you know, because I lost my phone, whatever. There's processes for phone companies to, to do that, right. right? And so if someone's trying to get into my account and they figured out my username and password and they know my cell number, they can direct my second factor, if I'm using text-based second factor, to their own phone. If they switch my phone number back to my original SIM, I might not ever yeah. even know. Yeah, That is a way to, com that's not the only way to compromise that factor. Um, there are ways uh, using, you know, what's called a man in the middle attack or other ways to kind of present a screen to the user that looks genuine, but is not. Um, you can be tricked into entering that second factor into a screen that the bad guy is intercepting and then entering into the genuine site. So that way, you know, it's a little trickier in some ways for the for the bad guy to, um, you know, to do everything at once. But, you know, people can be fooled into entering uh, the second factor. Uh, the app-based MFA or, or, or second mm -hmm. two-factor authentication, there are two kinds of it. One, yep. you know, generates the code that you enter manually that won't be subject to a SIM swap attack like I described. Mm -hmm. It would be subject to a man-in-the-middle attack because you're still manually entering those numbers. Right, yeah. There's another kind of app base that sends like a push to your phone. Mm. 
And so, you know, it says, is that really you trying to log in and you press yes? Yes, right. And if you do that, it's a lot harder to trick someone using that. The final, not the final, but a, a, an escalated type of attack that gets around multi-factor authentication is just known as exhaustion, where you just hit someone with so many requests, like enter your thing, enter your They're thing, push done. the button, push the button. Eventually they just oh God, do it. I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's funny. Yeah. That was great. That was really descriptive. Last question I have for you. Like, this sure. is all crazy and frightening. On a scale of one to 10, how scared are you of the impacts of AI on this stuff? Because I feel like that's going to be insane. Like deep fakes and all that stuff. Yeah. I mean... I, it, it's hard, it's hard to know, right? Like it's, you don't it's sound as frightened to, as I would have hoped, but okay, go ahead anyway. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> I, it, maybe I'm just resigned. I don't know. You're like, ah, like, it's over anyway. Fuck it. <laughs> right. You know, I don't want to say anything bad about our future overlords if we're recording. <laughs> right, right, right. Make sure they know. Let's stay good with the AI. I, I was there with them at the beginning, you know? Um, but no, I, I think we're, what we'll see is the same kind of arms race, attackers and defenders. Hmm. And then I think we will learn to live with it. Yeah, there, there will be either a different way of doing business electronically, or maybe people will do less business electronically. Yeah, perhaps. I think we have industry leaders who are thinking about it. Uh, we have, you know, evil criminals who are also thinking about it, and they will they will remain in tension. I lied. I have just one more question. Like, do you oh, see okay. any AI based attacks happening now? Like, is that a thing right now that people should be aware of, or is that something that's coming? Well, you don't always know. Yeah, you know, that's true. Like anecdotally, I've seen some pretty convincing looking spear phishing messages lately, but they're kind of better than what I've seen when I mess around with AI. So maybe those are just like smarter humans with uh, someone checking their grammar. I, I don't know if AI has been like fully deployed. I mean, you know, AI in some way has been around for a while. Like we've well, always had- Well, that's true. I, I think people know it like from ChatGPT, but that's not the start right, of AI. But, yeah. Right. You didn't need like a consumer level AI to help you write some code. Right. We covered a lot. Thank you. That was really yeah, I, that was like you, you got deep on that stuff, which I appreciate. So will you stick around for one last segment here as we finish up? Yeah, sure. All right. Great. Great. Hopefully you don't come to regret that. Okay. We'll take one <laughs> final sponsor break so you can hear more about our sponsor companies and their latest service offerings. Then stay tuned as always for the rump roast. It's even more supple than the roast beast. Contract automation isn't a trend, it's a strategic imperative. Though big players in the e-sign world will make you believe implementing it will cost you big bucks and more than a few headaches, it doesn't have to be that way. DocuB is an easy to onboard, full suite of products that includes e-signature, brilliant workflow capabilities, and AI contract automation, at nearly half the price of those out-of-touch behemoths. The one thing DocuB doesn't automate? Their customer service. Visit get.docub.com slash contracts to set up a call with a real live person. DocuB will be with you every step of the way. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went 
to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network, available wherever podcasts are found. Welcome back, everybody. That's right. We're at the rear end of the legal toolkit. We like to call it the rump roast. It's a grab bag of short form topics, all of my choosing. Why do I get to pick? Because I'm the host. David, as you probably know, you have two first names, David and Aaron. Before we go any further, do you have any feelings about that? I have one first name, David. (laughs) That's a good point. All right. So this time around, I'm going to do a little segment I'm calling doubling up. And maybe sometimes I forget I have attorneys on this show and they're very good with language. So let me, let me explain it a little bit more than I maybe should have starting out. So you have a last name that could be used as a first name and a first name that's being used as a first name. I'm going yes. to give you some trivia about people who have two first names. One is their first name, one is their last name. <laughs> and I'm struggling to describe this effectively now because you threw me off my game. Maybe the first person to ever do that in the rump roast, but we're going to go ahead because I think you understand what I'm saying and hopefully everybody out there I, listening I, does. I understand your meaning. Um, <laughs> I, it's probably worth pointing out at this point, when I agreed to stick around, I had no idea this was going to be called the rump roast. Yeah, exactly. Don't worry. It's going to be great. No, You're no, gonna no. Love it's it. good. All right. Hit me. All right. So I just have like five trivia questions for you on that theme. I'm going to start with what I think is a really easy question. This person has, for sake of clarity and efficiency, two first names, one being their last name. Musical artist, born in the Bronx, but grew up on Long Island. I'm going to give you multiple choice. Is it Elton John, Billy Joel, or Chris Martin from Coldplay? Elton John. That's going to be Billy Joel. Oh, you don't even need the clue. Excellent. Correct. And actually, like, what's interesting about that is Billy Joel's real name is Billy Joel, like William Joel. So I don't know if a lot of people know that. All right, you're one for one. All right. Let's see if you can carry this through. Got another one for you. They get a little bit tougher as we go. Okay. (laughs) This famous actor, who's actually kind of famous for doing cameos, had a cameo in the 2000 movie Eurotrip as a singer of a punk rock band. I know you have I that in even, your DVD I don't, I don't collection. I need you to tell me the, the multiple choice. Really? I, All this, right, is, so. this is Matt Damon. Scotty doesn't know. Scotty doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you that, would get that one. <laughs> that, that is the moment when I stopped bashing Matt Damon. I thought, you know, this guy's actually not so bad. <laughs> that, that, <was> <laughs> that is a great underrated movie scene. Oh, man. See? The rump roast, you're owning it. Nothing to be yeah. afraid of. <laughs> that does not constitute an endorsement of the entire movie, but that was a great a great rule for me. Right, the for... rest of the movie, a little bit dicey. That scene, <laughs> yeah. great. Okay, yeah. number three. This actor played a character named Ben Wyatt on the popular NBC sitcom Parks and Recreation. Would you like the multiple choice? Yeah, I never watched that show, I have okay. to admit. Okay, okay, okay. You've never watched Parks and Recreation? We're going to have to talk about that. Okay. Yeah. Adam Scott, Zachary Levi, Joey Lawrence. Adam Scott. Correct. Three for three. Yeah. Are you banging I knew he was right on the here? show. He was on the show. Man, you've never seen a single episode of Parks and Recreation? It's a really good show. No, but I like, um, what's the uh, the catering show that Adam Scott was on briefly? Oh, Party Down? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was good. That's a good show. You'd probably like yeah. Parks and Recreation. Ron Swanson. 
great American hero on that show. All right. Number four, three for three. Only one of these people has been the host of Family Feud. Anna Kendrick, Kendrick Lamar, or Steve Harvey? Yeah, Steve Harvey. All right, four for four. Uh, This is where I've really gone a little bit off the rails. This is probably going to be a complete guess. And I'm only doing this so I can tell a story. (laughs) The British mechanical and aerospace engineer who died in 2015, who actually has a Wikipedia page, is it David David Anderson, John Scott Scott, or Andrew Charles? David David Anderson, John Scott Scott, or Andrew Charles? One of these is a British mechanical and aerospace engineer. Andrew Charles. Oh, good guess, but it's John Scott Scott. Oh. I'm going to give you like a perfect score. I think no, it's only no, no. like the second I, I, perfect I, I, score. I didn't earn it. I didn't oh, well, I, I did that. That was cruel. That was cruel. But I no, wanted but I, to tell the story that I had a friend of mine when I was a kid. His first name was David, and his middle name was David. And we went to Catholic school together. So when you have like communion, you have to choose a communion name. And he chose <laughs> David. And I'm like, bro, let's add a little variety here. You don't want the perfect score? I'm willing to give it to you. Like that question no, no, was like a total you, guess you, job. You, you take the test you're given. Um, oh, and, and no, no. I'll just, it just gives me something to work towards. I appreciate your nobility. Yeah. You screwed me up thank at the you. beginning, but I felt like we recovered it pretty well. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we got back. We got, we got it back. David, thank you for coming on. This has been awesome. Hey. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, take care. See ya. If you want to find out more about David Aaron and PerkinsCooey.com, visit PerkinsCooey.com. Let me spell that shit for you. Perkins, P-E-R-K-I-N-S. You know that part of it. So the cooey part is a little bit tougher. It's C-O-I-E, PerkinsCooey.com. Check them out. Now, for those of you listening in Social Village, Rhode Island, we've got a great playlist for you all about, that's right, messaging. Now, sadly, I've run out of time today to discuss my feelings about Bill Belichick leaving the Patriots. I'm going to need some time on that one. And this is Jared Crea reminding you that whenever you have the chance to move on from the best coach in football history so your kid can play general manager, you just have to do it. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the unbillable hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.